today's episode, Francis Drake, Elizabeth I, and the Expansion of England. Hello, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar and located at warscholar.org. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. Don't forget my other two podcasts. On Full Contact Nerd Interviews, I speak with author Martha Wells about her science fiction Murderbot series. On Technology in Space, I speak with Carla Diana about human-robot and smart device interactions. Thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Lawrence Bergreen, author of In Search of a Kingdom, Francis Drake, Elizabeth I, and The Perilous Birth of the British Empire, published March 16, 2021, by Custom House. Thank you for speaking with me. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So first, um, how did you get into studying this subject and end up uh, writing a book on it? Well, I've been writing about exploration and discovery, specifically uh, uh, by sea, for a long time. And about, uh, this is my 11th book, uh, about 20 years ago, I wrote a book about Ferdinand Magellan, uh, the first circumnavigator. And uh, this was about 60 years prior to Drake. And Magellan, of course, was Portuguese and sailed for Spain um, and died in the middle of his uh, epic uh, voyage. Um, but he blazed in a tragic way a path. And I always wanted to return to the second circumnavigator, who was Francis Drake, who, of course, is English. Really, the first successful one because the Drake managed to pull off the feat that uh, Magellan couldn't do, mm -hmm. uh, although just a handful of Magellan's survivors did. And um, also, Drake is—he's uh, a wonderful character. He's—he he really fits the bill as a pirate. You know, red hair like Queen Elizabeth had red hair. Mm -hmm. uh, very spirited, very boisterous. At the same time, deeply religious um, uh, because of his father and his family, and uh, very patriotic. So um, he, he sort of fit the mold, and yet he'd been pushed out of view a little bit, and I wanted to bring him back uh, center stage because his circumnavigation, which then led to the Battle of the Spanish Armada, reshaped global, or at least um, Western, uh, politics. At that point, um, Spain had been the the uh, big uh, bopper uh, for for uh, several centuries, really, and England was an also-ran. They were getting, they were poor, they were getting poor. It looked like uh, King Philip of Spain was going to overrun them at any time, uh, which was their big fear. And Drake helped rescue them from uh, semi-obscurity, along with Elizabeth, you know, the partnership that they formed. And it was, you know, led to the Elizabethan Empire, which we, we think of as being grand and glorious. Mm. However, I think if we were there, we would have found it um, rather um, pinched and starving and impecunious, mm. because England was always um, poor compared to the other countries in, in Europe, uh, known for the people starving, and uh, they just didn't have the luxuries that were enjoyed on the continent. Um, Drake helped to alleviate that uh, to a certain extent. Um, but anyway, it, it, was a, it was a point where um, England started to turn around. Mm -hmm. So what, uh, what year specifically do you cover? What date range? Oh, well, you know, Drake was born in 1540 um, and then lived to be about 56. There's some dispute about which year he was actually born in, but the famous circumnavigation was 1577 uh, to 1580, covers three years mm -hmm. um, from his departure from Plymouth, England, to his return three years later. And then, of course, the famous Battle of the Spanish Armada, which is one of those turning points um, that we all hear about in school, 
was 1588. There were several battles that followed up, but uh, and, and, and England didn't necessarily win them all. But this was the significant one. This is the one that set the tone and marked the arrival of England as a global sea power. Although their navy at that time compared to Spain was rather small and amateurish, which in a way was a part of their strength. Mm -hmm. Was Francis Drake, was he a, a naval officer or simply a mariner? They, he was he was a a, um, a privateer. He was a privately commissioned uh, captain. Uh, we would call him a pirate. England had uh, virtually no navy at that point, perhaps a hundred people in the navy. I'm not exaggerating. Mm. Um, it was all a, a pickup squad um, or guerrillas, if you will, you know, a guerrilla uh, 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 navy. But that was part of its strength. Spain, in contrast, their chief rival, um, had a very formal, top-heavy uh, navy with elaborate uniforms and elaborately decorated ships and uh, was not the better for it. it. It was almost an impediment to to have this formality. So England's lack of a formal navy was an advantage. What they did have was better ships. Uh, their ships were what they called race-built. Now, um, that's not, that's R-A-Z-E, not, not racing as a sailboat race, mm -hmm. but raised, like lowered, um, so that they could be faster and more maneuverable and get into tight spaces, especially if they were fighting in a harbor um, around Spain or something like that. So these race-built boats uh, gave England quite an advantage. Mm -hmm. And they were developed out of uh, sheer necessity. Uh, Spain uh, seemed to think that they could sort of bend the laws of reality to suit them, but it, it didn't always work that way. Mm -hmm. I guess that some some people might wonder how how it is that a, a country like Spain would have a better navy or fleet than an island nation like, um, like England. Spain was wealthy. And they were wealthy because they exploited um, Central and South America for gold and silver and gems. And uh, this made a really big difference. So they could afford it. Um, England did not have those resources. Uh, Spain has had uh, colonies all over the place. Uh, they were expanding. It's only a quirk of fate that we're speaking English instead of Spanish because they had a very strong foothold in North America. Um, it, and England, other countries combined to knock them out. So Spain was, uh, you know, was the the empire to contend with. They also had an alliance with the Catholic Church. So the two of them together combined with the Spanish Inquisition, uh, which which amplified their power, proved to be very potent uh, weapon for keeping other nations in line or in their thrall. How did an individual like Francis Drake develop the skills and, and get a ship that was capable of circumnavigating the globe? Years of experience. He was he was self-taught. He was the oldest of 12 children. Hmm. Uh, his father had been a farmer, quite religious, Protestant. Uh, Drake um, eventually uh, went to sea because it was one of the few places he could earn a living. Some of his siblings died at sea. It was a very dangerous profession. At first, he was a kind of small-time merchant marine, uh, ferrying items around. Uh, later on, he became a slaver. England isn't really known for slavery big time, but there was some at that point. And part of the reason he became a slaver was that his cousin, John Hawkins, well-known figure in uh, British maritime history at that point, uh, hired him. And he accompanied Hawkins on voyages to Central and South America. Uh, they weren't actually going in search of slaves of their own, they were going to steal 
slaves from Portuguese ships. So they were middlemen, if you will. Mm -hmm. What Drake saw horrified him about slavery. He was really, you wouldn't call him a humanitarian, that would be stretching the point. Mm -hmm. But what he saw was enough to let him see, make him see that slavery was very repugnant. And he didn't really think, and he thought it was very dangerous. And he didn't think it was a great way to become rich. And Drake's guiding motive really was wealth, to become rich. And the way he saw to do that was to get a hold of gold and silver. So instead of stealing, stealing slaves from Spain, he wound up stealing gold and silver, which they had been mining all over the place and keeping in deposits up and down the coasts on the East Coast and West Coast of uh, Central and South America, um, and occasion inland as well. And uh, Drake became a marauder par excellence. Um, he was so accomplished at this that in Spain, he was known as El Draque, the dragon. Mm. And it was thought that he had supernatural powers. Spanish could be very um, superstitious at that point. Actually, so could England as well. Uh. And uh, so they thought that he had some telescope where he could see around the world um, uh, and, you know, from one place. And with the supernatural powers, he was, was very successful. His reputation, his demonic reputation in Spain was probably bigger than his reputation in England. In England, he was prime enterprise, one pirate among others, mm -hmm. or would-be pirates. There were other uh, sea captains who were vying for Elizabeth's favor, and they were trying to do the same, exact same things that Drake was doing. They just weren't successful at it. Mm -hmm. The other sort of missing ingredient, or important ingredient, rather, of Drake's success was that he was a really skillful sailor. And that's kind of an inborn talent, and it was something that he... so. Both inborn and uh, learned over the years. He was also, we think of him as being very brave and swashbuckling, mm. and indeed he was, but he was also very cautious. Um, he had learned from the mistakes of Magellan, who had been killed by uh, islanders in the Philippines. Um, Drake usually stayed offshore, and if he made a raid on a uh, Spanish encampment to steal gold, it was a surgical raid. Mm. You know, it was quick and it was not deadly. That was the other thing. Oddly enough, in this very violent time where human life was cheap, uh, Drake, who hated the Spain, Spanish, um, was rather respectful, almost to a comical degree. And if he boarded a Spanish ship, or when he boarded a Spanish ship, he made an elaborate show of politeness uh, with the captain. Uh, usually gave his victims a souvenir, a small trinket, as if to say, Drake was here. So a souvenir. Imagine if a robber came to your home and left a trinket to say, well, you've had the privilege of being, you know, robbed by the best. And that was Drake's trademark. Um, so he, he was a character with a capital C. When eventually the legend of Drake got out, um, this made him very popular in Spain. What he didn't do, unlike, say, Columbus or Magellan, was kill lots and lots of people, uh, you know, just because. Uh, because they had killed him or because he felt threatened or because he felt it was his religious duty or something like that. Uh, so in, in this, you know, odd kind of way, he was respectful of human life. I'm speaking with Lawrence Bergerine, author of In Search of a Kingdom. You can find more information about his work at lawrencebergerine.com. If you like this episode of Military History Inside Out so far, please tap the like button and bullseye the subscribe button. If you want more interviews with military historians or to get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. 
If you want interviews with writers and creative people, or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, check out FullContactNerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and my podcast, Technology and Space. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. So where did uh, Drake get um, the cannons and, and the weapons to outfit his ships if the English didn't have much of a Navy tradition well, at that they, point? They had some. I mean, they, and their cannon, um, these were ships that were usually privately owned. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elizabeth either bought them or leased them uh, with her funds. And uh, she was a partner. It was usually a syndicate of six or a dozen people. She was, of course, the most important one. Mm-hmm. Um, but she kept her identity somewhat secret because she didn't want to advertise it because she didn't want Spain and King Philip to know about it because she was afraid of provoking a wholesale invasion. However, there were all sorts of clues. Uh, often, if uh, you know a captain who'd been financed by her, you know, a would-be uh, pirate would name an island Elizabeth. Uh, certainly, Drake did that, and so did others. So, if you looked carefully at what was going on, you would deduce that Elizabeth did have some involvement. But, you know, she did not brag about it, and she kept it, I think, semi-secret is the best way to, to put it. Mm-hmm. So when did uh, Francis Drake, when was he first, the first time he was a captain of a ship, his own ship? Well, one of the first times was uh, when he was, um, you know, involved in the slave trade with his uncle Hawkins, mm-hmm. um, John Hawkins, and the ship was Ju- the Judith. And it turned out to be a disaster because uh, he got into a battle with Spain. Um, you know, people died. He, he and Hawkins escaped with their lives and eventually made it back to England. Um, it was thought that there was some alienation between them because of this misadventure and its failure. We're not really sure. But that marked the end of Drake's the beginning and the end of his career as a slaver. Hmm. And... Um... What, what sort of crews would he have on his ships? Were they mainly English or a mix? Well, generally English. They were not really trained. There was no such thing as a, as formal training. These were perhaps more formal in, in Spain, uh, but they were people who uh, often they were ex-cons. They were prisoners. If they hadn't been aboard this ship, they would be in jail. This was perhaps the lesser of two evils. Maybe not. Some would have thought it was safer to, to be in jail. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, there were a few career mariners, but, you know, the life of a sailor was generally short. Sailors were not long-lived. And, you know, there were a few that were experienced. Now, those were the uh, the run of the mill. And then there was another class of sailor, uh, and they were the nobility. They were, most of these voyages had several, a sprinkling of uh, nobility aboard um, to give it their imprimatur. And that was Drake's case as well. This was actually a problem with Drake because he was a commoner. And the nobility, for example, aboard the ships uh, of his circumnavigation, at least at the beginning, looked down on him and did not give him proper respect. It really wasn't clear, you know, who was the boss. Uh, was it Drake or was it uh, Lord so-and-so, you know, with a, with a fancy title but less experience? Mm-hmm. Uh, Drake managed to distinguish himself because of his bravery and because of his uh, experience. Mm-hmm. Now, this book is uh, not just simply a biography of Francis Drake. How, how do you break it down? How, what do you focus on? 
Well, I focus on Drake and Elizabeth. They're the two uh, characters who really make it go. And it's about the relationship with, you know, the, uh, between them, uh, with Drake as the middleman and, uh, you know, the gradual dawning of the idea of a British empire, which Drake almost inadvertently brought about. Um, I talk about uh, a, a mystic uh, mathematician named John Dee, who's like a character out of a Harry Potter uh, novel who was a favorite of Queen Elizabeth for a while and uh, conceived of the idea and invented the term the British Empire, which, which hadn't been heard from before. And it came along at the same time as Drake's circumnavigation. And so, you know, the, the two merged. Uh, I also wanted to show how the circumnavigation, which, you know, I really wrote as kind of an adventure, you know, the true life adventure story, um, led to, eight years later, the Battle of the Spanish Armada. Again, in, you know, in my telling, I see it as a, as a kind of true life adventure story. Now, in reality, the Battle of the Spanish Armada is incredibly vast. Um, it involved many ships. It lasted for weeks um, in the summer of 1588, starting in July, going on through August. Uh, many many uh, sailors died on both sides. Uh, there were huge storms that uh, interfered with, and some people credit these storms for England's success because they destroyed the Spanish fleet. And uh, one could 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 uh, write a uh, you know very big wide canvas uh, study of, of just the Battle of the Spanish Armada. But I tried to see this more or less through Drake's point of view. You know, what did he see? What did he experience? What was his role? He certainly wasn't the only player. Imagine a huge World War II uh, you know invasion or landing, and there were various generals, hmm. and he he was the general. Uh, that I was focusing on. And uh, so I wanted to show, you know, what Drake's role at that point was, both in English history and therefore, by extension, in European and global history, because he happened to come along at a time uh, that, that really mattered, you know, that really was a trigger um, for a newer, like, more expanded England. You know, things could have gone either way so often when you, when you realize how things happen in history. Queen Elizabeth, for example, became the queen by a fluke. Uh, Mary Queen of Scots, who was Catholic, uh, was the queen who preceded her and died young. Elizabeth had been out of the line of succession for a long time. Uh, through a series of quirks, she was in it. Her father was Henry VIII. Her mother was Anne Boleyn, who, and whom Henry VIII beheaded. Imagine having these people as her parents. You know, uh, <laughs> it could get you kind of looking over your shoulder to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, but in addition to being very being very wary and Machiavellian and even duplicitous, Elizabeth was very smart. She was well-educated, which was unusual for women at that era. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and she could be highly analytical, and this stood her in good stead. So by the time she, she was uh, her, of her coronation, when she was 25 years old, uh, she was in some ways well-prepared for this job. And, uh, you know, she managed to hang on to the throne um, against all odds, partly because she never married. Mm. If she had married, I think it would have been very different. And, you know, she would have, she realized that she would have lost her, uh, some of her power. And looming over all of this was the religious question, because England was sharply divided between Protestants and Catholics mm -hmm. um, as a result of uh, Henry's, uh, you know, wanting to get married and Reformation, all that. So, uh, you know, her, her throne was a very unstable one. Uh, what she needed, the one thing she felt that could added some uh, kind of stability to it was some gold, some gems, 
wealth, something mm -hmm. uh, to bolster her her uh, regimen, her, her regime. Uh, in Spain, it was the opposite. Spain was very wealthy. Um, Philip, you know, um, was a recluse, stayed in a large castle, didn't involve himself with, you know, day-to-day -day affairs and people too much, uh, did everything kind of by remote control, by paperwork. If this had been the present era, he, he would have said he ran, he ran everything from his desktop computer. Mm. Elizabeth, on the contrary, was much more hands-on. She was, to use another cliched expression, a people person. Mm. You know, she got to know people very well, including Francis Drake. And despite her reputation as the Virgin Queen, there's a lot of indirect evidence that she had at least several lovers. Um, these were not just uh, stray uh, people who, who wandered, you know, uh, into her bedroom. Uh, they were usually drawn from the highest echelons of nobility and the kind of people she could have married if she had wanted to marry. Mm. And there's enough evidence that she was deeply felt a deep affection uh, for some of them. So. Um, although at other times she could seem heartless and cruel, uh, she, you know, she, she did, you know, have uh, strong sentimental attachments. So you have these two, you know, two kind of oddly matched characters, Drake and Elizabeth, who found common cause, mm -hmm. which was to strengthen England. Uh, the fact that they both had red hair, I thought it was kind of amusing and a coincidence, I don't know. And um, they, uh, and eventually they developed, you know, a certain amount of rapport. Now, if Drake or Elizabeth had lived longer, he died at 56. That might have changed because sometimes people who served Elizabeth for a long time had a falling out with her and, you know, guillotine. Uh. Uh, mm. So, as I said, she could really be uh, very tricky, very difficult. As she got older, particularly, she got uh, crankier huh. um, and, and more judgmental. Um, but you know, And she surrounded herself with a very tight coterie of advisors. One of them was John Dee, who I who I mentioned, uh, but a very another another very important one was Sir Francis Walsingham. He was a Puritan, um, which loosely translated would mean today that he was a conservative or even ultra conservative. It's a very rough equivalent. I don't mm -hmm. want to push it too far. Uh, Walsingham uh, perhaps did more than anybody to preserve her kingdom because he developed the first comprehensive spy system in the world. Uh, and uh, she used it to track down her spies, and she developed a very sophisticated intelligence service. Now, the code for that was when everybody, uh, when, when people were writing about it, was a pair of glasses, spectacles. So you had two of them like this, and then you had a line drawn on top on top of them. So if you saw that, it looked like O O seven, double O seven. <laughs> I think. This is where Ian Fleming got that designation from, because he was actually with James Bond and Secret Service, all the fictional stuff, reaching back into an important part of um, English history, and especially uh, uh, the Secret Service, huh. uh, which was highly developed. So that was one of her survival skills. So um, to turn to a, a different point, I've heard that um, one of the, the lucky the strokes of luck for England was having um, certain kinds of timber or certain size logs that could give them a large mass is that yes yeah they were very fortunate to have good timber and good building materials for their ships um spain was rather careless about that they just wanted them to be big and impressive looking uh, which also meant that they were awkward uh they rode very high in the water uh the 
but race-built ships of England rode much lower in the water, which meant that they were more stable and could be faster. Mm -hmm. uh, also, uh, they these English ships had better weapons. Uh, the English gunners and foundries poured and developed guns that were uh, and cannon that were e more more easy to maneuver. Uh, the Spanish ships used several different sizes of cannonball. Well, imagine if you were in the heat of battle and you couldn't figure out which side you needed a cannonball right away, mm -hmm. and, and you couldn't figure out which one. It didn't fit the cannon, uh, or the cannons weren't really tied down. They were skittering all over the deck. It, it was a mess. Um, the English ships, from a practical point of view, uh, were, were much better uh, planned and figured out, and their their uh, artillery was superior. So. Uh, in the Battle of the Spanish Armada, that uh, Drake and the other uh, commanders uh, took advantage of that. Mm -hmm. um, Drake himself, when he was on his circumnavigation, this was not really a military mission per se, although he was conducting a lot of raids. Mm -hmm. uh, it was more of the it was more of stealth encounters. You know, he would be uh, there and gone before anybody uh, knew what happened. So, and in fact, it's it's not even clear that he ever killed anybody. In his entire circumnavigation, you know, mm. or maybe one person. There's some discussion about this. So there was not a big death toll, you know, from this event, unlike the voyages of Columbus or Magellan or many others. You know, that alone is quite extraordinary considering considering the level of hostility between these two countries. Just talking about the uh, the English ships being lower in the water and more stable, I would think that, um, I don't know if you covered anything like this, but that seems like it would be better for gunnery, that you could um, aim and control your shots better than, than the Spanish could. Uh, yes. Uh, the, the Spain, they, 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 accuracy was not their strong suit. Now, their strong suit was showing up with a flotilla of big ships and making an impressive display um, and their gentlemen uh, captains were not very capable or skillful. Uh, Drake was really skillful. He was a, you know, very experienced sailor, an old salt. So can you talk about um, some of the, I think Francis Drake is known for raids in the Caribbean. Um, yeah. I think you alluded to some of them. Can you, can you go into a little bit more detail about those? Well, yeah, I didn't write, write too much about them. Uh, he raided in the Caribbean uh, before the circumnavigation, and especially afterwards, it was let me just sort of a little background here. Um, after the battle, after the circumnavigation, he was knighted by Queen Elizabeth, so that elevated his status, um, and that that was a big deal for Drake, a big deal for England, and he quickly became uh, one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest, person in England. Now, how did this happen? It was because of the extraordinary value of the gold and silver that he brought back. Um, Elizabeth hid most of it, denied that he had brought back anything, but stored it for safekeeping in the Tower of London. Um, and then after that, um, he uh, received a uh, magnificent castle called Buckland Abbey, which is you can visit now as a tourist attraction, uh, which had been a Cistercian monastery, and uh, but it was converted to a private house. His first wife had died. Um, he lived there with his second wife and Sydenham, uh, except. And it was thought, and he became mayor of Plymouth. So he's wealthy, mayor of Plymouth, huge castle, no children. Um, you would have thought that that's, that's the way he would have spent the rest of his life. But he was bored being at home. And uh, within a few years, he was back at sea and back in the Caribbean. 
uh, fighting one battle after another, mm-hmm. often without great success. He never equaled his two great successes, the circumnavigation and the Spanish Armada, in any of his Caribbean campaigns. In fact, he eventually died in the Caribbean uh, in uh, 1586. Hmm. Um, 96. And uh, he, of, of dysentery, not, not, not uh, from a bullet fired by the enemy. Uh, but he was constantly in pursuit of uh, the enemy. You know, I, I think of dogs who can't resist chasing cars. Yeah. You know, and one comes by. This is what Drake was like when a Spanish ship came by. He could not resist chasing it, boarding it, uh, stealing the gold, which he didn't need at this point, you know, risking his life. And so for him, he was doing it for fun. Well, for patriotism, he, of course, he would say he was doing it for clean the country, but there was no crying need for him to do it at that point. Which, you know, by rights, he should have been at home, uh, but um, he was happier at sea. And, and he said, he, you know, that's where he felt his, his true home was, because that's where he spent so many years. Mm-hmm. So his Caribbean record was a mixed one. There's no big, you know, triumph we could point to. Um, there's, we could just say there's skirmishes that, uh, you know, where he fought to a draw or actually lost. When he was circumnavigating, um, obviously enemies aren't going to say, leave him alone simply because he's doing this task. Um, did he, how much did he have to avoid, you know, European enemies? Well, it's a, that's a very good question. Um, he was very concerned that the Portuguese or the Spanish, you know, would show up suddenly and get after him, but he, he avoided them. You know, there weren't that many European ships, you know, around, so it wasn't likely he was going to intentionally, uh, or, you know, bump into them. Um, and if he did see any, he avoided them. The Spanish ships that he came, he did encounter tended to be almost unarmed and unable to deal with his aggression, aggression with his weaponry. Um, one of his most famous engagements at sea against the Spanish ship was a, was a ship called Pacafuego. Uh, at least that was the nickname, uh, Shipfire, literally. And this ship was gold, laden with gold and silver. And he encountered it off the coast of Chile or Peru, anyway, uh, the west coast of uh, South America. And in this typical Drake fashion, he boarded it. Um, he disguised himself as a, a non-hostile combatant and then suddenly surprised the captain with, you know, flying the English colors, you know, whoops, big surprise. Here comes El Dragon, you know, the dragon. Mm-hmm. Um, and he didn't slaughter everybody. You would think, well, okay, the next step was to kill everybody and steal everything. He went and socialized with the captain, uh, went to his stateroom, and gave him one of his little gifts, one of his Drake trinkets, to say Drake was here, and then proceeded to, almost with the, cap- with the captain's acquiescence, that's the right way of putting it, offload all the gold and silver and other precious items that the ship was carrying. This was one of his biggest hauls. And, uh, you know, it was kind of extraordinary the way he did it because almost anybody else would have done it. If they had done the same thing, it would have been accompanied with a lot of bloodshed. Mm-hmm. Um, if he encountered a, a Spanish encampment along the sh- you know, coast of uh, Chile or something, um, his men crept in and uh, if the soldiers guarding it were sleeping, you know, they would stealthily creep away with it. Um, the Spanish were notoriously poor guards uh, of this gold, hmm. partly because they had so much of it, they didn't really worry about, uh, you know, a few bars of gold missing here and there. Um, and uh, also because they worked quickly. That's the other thing. I'm 
tried to get a sense of, you know, how much did Drake's thievery actually harm the Spanish Empire or the Spanish economy? And I think the answer is not that much. They had so much gold and silver that what Drake took uh, or subverted away from them uh, didn't really, it wasn't itself crippling. I think the main effect was psychological that the big and vulnerable Spanish Empire, you know, was vulnerable to this uh, raider, this English pirate people didn't realize at that point, except for a few spies that he was backed by Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. um, and he managed to succeed again and again, uh, and, you know, acquired this uh, demonic reputation, uh, which worked in his favor. And he enjoyed it. I mean, he fought with relish. I'm speaking with Lawrence Bergerine, author of In Search of a Kingdom. You can find more information about his work at lawrencebergerine.com. If you like this episode of Military History Inside Out so far, please tap the like button and bullseye the subscribe button. If you want more interviews with military historians or to get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, check out fullcontactnerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and my podcast, Technology and Space. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. Um, what was that? My, I'm blanking on um, the tool or the instrument that's used to determine how far east or west a ship is. Azimuth, a compass. Uh, um, I, I forget. It's the one that, um, I, I, yeah, I'm blanking on this. Um, they had to develop a way to measure, match their clocks. He did not use anything innovative in terms of uh, technology. Mm -hmm. You know, they still couldn't figure out longitude. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, he had more or less the same tools as Magellan did. Um, he used Magellan's maps, so they were better maps he used. He had the benefit of Magellan's mistakes, which made a huge difference. Uh, but um, this was not a big advance over what had been going on 60 years before. Mm -hmm. uh, Magellan's big mistake or, or lapse was that he didn't know about the Pacific Ocean. So when he managed his feet, which was partly just dumb luck of navigating what we now call the Strait of Magellan, uh, near the Antarctic Circle, and he emerged on the um, western side, he thought that he could cross the, this little Pacific Ocean, you know, in a matter of days. And it hurts. <laughs> but it's actually, you know, it's a third of the size of the planet. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Water covers two thirds of our planet. Uh, Drake got some sense of how much, how big the oceans really are. Whereas Magellan, like all Europeans at that point, you know, had a much more distorted sense. They were relying on maps that were inaccurate. So, uh, with this much clearer information, Drake, you know, could make more rational decisions about what to do. He was still capable of being misled. Um, at that point, a common myth was the Northwest Passage. This is a term crops up from time to time. In his day, the Northwest Passage meant a shortcut to the east, i.e. to the riches of uh, Asia, except there was no Northwest Passage. And after he uh, went as far north as he possibly could, 
up the west coast of uh, uh, North America, looking for the Northwest Passage. He gave up. Um, he turned west and south and headed out into the Pacific and um, joined up with what he knew was Magellan's track um, and followed that. He was just, at that point, following in uh, uh, Magellan's um, uh, wake, if you will. Which leads me to another point. Uh, Drake, for all his accomplishments, wasn't really interested in natural phenomena or science. Now, this was not the 18th century where you had scientific voyages, you know, Darwin or, or uh, uh, Captain Cook or something, you know, per se. However, even Magellan's voyage, you know, took some scientific measurements. Uh, they saw things, you know, that uh, nobody had seen before. Uh, the Milky Way, any one of the you know, various planets, uh, you know, all sorts of geological features. And his chroniclers noted them. Uh, you know, they considered it an important part of the voyage. Drake had no interest in this. And he didn't really bring back fascinating maps. Uh, and his own accounts are the ones he commissioned to have written. One of the best was uh, by uh, his uh, chaplain, uh, Francis Fletcher, who wrote a rather eloquent book. These are all easy to find online or in libraries. Mm -hmm. um, uh, discussed some of these things, but, you know, Drake is, you, you've got a single-minded pursuit of gold. And uh, rather than, you know, getting a, a look at the world, mm -hmm. and it was the idea of circumnavigating really didn't impress him particularly. Um, what, it, what impressed him was the amount of gold he could get. So considering how big the Pacific is, what points, um, as he was crossing it, what points did he, did he stop at? Well, he finally stopped when he got to the Moluccas. He knew it would be a long haul, but he also would develop strategies for survival, unlike Drake, who didn't know, I'm sorry, unlike Magellan, who didn't know what to expect. Um, he uh, brought as much fresh water as he possibly could. Um, at some point, the men came close to starvation. Also, flying fish occasionally, rather magically, uh, emerged from the ocean and landed on the deck. So that became a source of food for the men. Um, occasionally, they also fished as well. Um, they knew they had a long haul ahead of them, so they had prepared uh, accordingly. Uh, the Moluccas, um, or the so-called Spice Islands in, in Indonesia, um, you know, turned out to be their big goal. They got there relatively quickly, that is to say, in a matter of weeks, because of the trade winds, uh, which blow constantly. Uh, Magellan had discovered them, and that was a, a, yet a, you know, another thing that had benefited uh, Francis Drake. Um, was the discovery of the trade winds. So he knew he could, or he hoped, and he turned out that he could count on them to propel him across the Pacific. If those winds had blown in a different direction or didn't exist, you know, the Pacific would not have been crossable. Um, but they were very helpful or essential for both Drake and then Jalen, and Jalen, Drake, and anybody else um, who was trying to make this passage. Mm -hmm. How many ships did Drake take on this oh, voyage? started out with five. He lost several along the way. Uh, so he ended up with, I think, just two. Uh, the main ship, when it started out, was called Pelican, um, which was a symbol of Queen Elizabeth. Um, he rechristened it um, uh, when he got to Central South America as Golden Hind. And this Golden Hind is one of the most famous ships in the history of navigation. There's a very good replica of it tied up 
and adopted London and St. Mary Overly Dock, so you can get some sense of what it was like. It was about 100 feet long, maybe 105 feet long. Um, very sturdy. Um, at one point, he invited a bunch of uh, Portuguese navigators to take a look at it and see what they thought, and they, they admired it. Um, they noted that it didn't have, it wasn't armor-plated, which they felt was a shortcoming. And, you know, they, they sort of picked some, some flaws in it because the Portuguese were expert navigators. But it was a, it was a really sturdy ship. And again, it didn't ride too high in the water. Um, there's a picture of it on the cover of my book. So you can see the picture that the boat that's depicted there is uh, Golden High. So that, that was Drake's ship and his, you know, his, uh, the one he's most famous for. So did he bring much in the way of uh, cannon or other weaponry to protect himself, or was it about... Really, they had cannon and cannonball and uh, guns and shot. Um, at that point, um, uh, gun makers were proceeding quickly. You know, the, the art, if that's, if you will, the craft of uh, manufacturing weapons was uh, increasing at a rapid point. Um, this was good news and bad news because they were becoming lighter and more maneuverable, which was good for Drake. On the other hand, for somebody like Elizabeth, who was a target of 14 assassination attempts, uh, weapons that were became, becoming increasingly easy to conceal uh, posed a great hazard uh, because she became, everybody around her became more and more fearful that somebody would walk into her presence uh, with a concealed weapon, which you know, early in her reign probably wouldn't have been possible. Hmm. Uh, but later in her reign would have been. Uh, so they, they, they were a mixed blessing. However, Drake, as I mentioned, you know, was not, although he threatened a lot, uh, was not particularly violent, may not even have killed one person in terms, you know, in terms of his uh, pursuit of his goal of the circumnavigation, hmm. which when you think about it, it's pretty darn extraordinary. On the other hand, he could be a, quite the martinet when it came to his crew. And there was a famous incident uh, that occurred uh, with John Doty, who was one of the noblemen aboard his ship. Uh, Drake had decided that Doty was a witch. Hmm. Um, this was not an uncommon Elizabethan superstition or belief. There were male witches and there were female witches. Uh, you know, we hear about witches in Macbeth by Shakespeare. Uh, but there were, they were also, you know, male witches as well. And often they were accompanied by some sort of an animal. Uh, could be a cat or something else, which was considered a familiar. Uh, so Drake took it in mind, and we're not exactly clear why, that Doty, who was clearly a rival for uh, the uh, mastery of the, of the fleet, uh, was, a, was a witch. And he had a trial when they were in Port St. Julian, uh, off the coast of South America. This was on the uh, eastern side, and condemned him to death. Now, this was a very fateful spot for a trial, because the Magellan had done the same thing, sixty years more, sixty years more or less, also with somebody he considered to be a traitor, mm. and had a trial and condemned him to death and executed him. Um, so uh, the gallows that erect that Drake erected for uh, Doty were within sight of the ones that Drake had. I'm sorry, that Magellan had erected, you know, decades earlier. Uh, what Drake was thinking, I don't know. It's, this couldn't have been coincidence. Anyway, uh, he shared a last supper, if you will, with Doty, and there's an account of it uh, from uh, the chaplain whom I mentioned, 
which shows it as being, and this is sort of hard to believe, but that's what he wrote, rather convivial. And uh, they were toasting each other, and there was a lot of fellowship. And then Doty was, you know, shortly there afterwards, executed. Now, it was thought that this could get Drake into serious trouble when he got back to England. Um, he had a lot of enemies and, you know, rivals. Doty had family and supporters. Mm-hmm. And if Drake had been less successful, or just less lucky, um, when he got back to England, he wouldn't have been feted and lauded. He would have been imprisoned and tried and perhaps even executed. Hmm. However, everybody was so happy when he did get back that the uh, sense of dismay about Doty was, was kind of lost in the commotion, and all they could think about was, was how much money he brought back. So he didn't really have to suffer the consequences of this of, of this behavior. But as I said, witches were considered common. I you know talked about uh, John Dee, you know the mystic mathematician. Uh, you know, it sort of fits into that same you know same kind of English belief in the supernatural at that point, mm. which was very compelling. And it didn't really, it wasn't a separate realm from uh, ordinary life. You know, astronomy and astrology at that point were considered the same. They were, they were identical. What, what was Drake's relationship with um, whoever was head of the Royal Navy at this time? It was a good one. Um, he was respectful. He was very careful in the way he played the uh, head of the Royal Navy. Uh, it was Richard uh, Howard. Uh, 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 Sir Richard Howard, uh, who was what you would call a desk admiral. In other words, he didn't fancy himself, you know, a great sailor, conqueror, uh, explorer like Drake, although he was a sailor. Um, so this worked for both men because, you know, he wasn't trying to show that he know, knew better than Drake. Um, he offered to give him some protection. Um, he set down certain limits and parameters for Drake. Um, and they, they managed to get along pretty well. So, now, one of Drake's abilities uh, was to get along with the brass, um, in this case, uh, uh, Richard Howard. Um, he, he did have, you know, enemies and, and rivals, but uh, they tended to be people, you know, kind of irrational and spring out of nowhere, nowhere like uh, Doby, the guy who he executed. So uh, let me ask about how you did the research for this book. Um, what, what sort of materials did you use? Well, you know, I worked on this book off and on for almost 20 years. Hmm. Ever since I had done the Magellan book. Uh, materials. I First of all, I went to a lot of places associated with Drake and the circumnavigation in Devon and in London uh, and around England uh, because I wanted to be able to see it with my own eyes and describe it and get, you know, get some sense of it. Um, also in various naval museums um, in London, uh, there are several. And in the United States, the John Carter Brown Library. In Providence, Rhode Island, has a very extensive, wonderful collection of uh, maritime materials. Uh, here in New York City, where I, I live, I use the resources of the Columbia University Library, uh, also in Cambridge, the Harvard University Library, the Houghton Library especially, which has some books by John Dee. Um, there's a smaller subscription library here in New York called the New York Society Library. Um, and uh, to my amazement, this small library had books from John Dee's personal library. And in those days, people wrote huge, voluminous notes in margins of books, not just a couple of, you know, a couple of comments like how odd or interesting and a check mark, but they wrote, you know, paragraphs of material in the margins. And that's what John Dee did. So I got some of his books 
and you could see about navigation and other things. You know, you could see some of his thought processes. Um, other books, um, you know, there are standard volumes, compilations of archives of correspondence, which I got a hold of, um, mostly in English. I also wanted to fill in the Spanish side, so I got those in Spanish. And if they hadn't already been translated into English, um, I, I got them translated as well because I wanted to show the comparison between the Spanish view of things at that time regarding Drake um, and the English view. And believe me, they were very, very different. Hmm. You know, Drake, of course, is a threat, a nuisance. Uh, they tried to just, you know, laugh him off, but he, he wouldn't go away. And, and Philip never really seemed, King Philip never seemed to take him uh, seriously enough, you know, in terms of the threat that he posed. Um, then I visited various other sites, um, some of them going back to the Magellan book. I went through the Strait of Magellan, which is a cruise that I, when this pandemic is over, I recommend to anybody. It's a fantastic uh, excursion through these fjords and in uh, sort of extreme southern uh, South America. Really, really enjoyable. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I wish I had been able to retrace the entire route, mm. but... Um, you know, there were a couple of other high points uh, that I covered. Um, after a while, you sort of get the general idea. I think if I had tried to describe every single landfall of his, the book would have been two or three times as long. And yeah. actually, there's somebody else who, who had done it, a guy, named, a scholar named Turner, who's British, and he's, he's compiled a, a, an extraordinary compilation of uh, pictures and descriptions of all of Drake's landfalls in a book called In Drake's Wink. Hmm. Um, so if somebody really wants to, you know, be a true Drake completist, that, that might be a place to turn. Hmm. There are also various Drake biographies. Um, in, with Magellan, there was very little in English. With Drake, uh, there's a fair amount, you know, in my opinion of them, nothing was, you know, super duper definitive. You know, some of them were interesting. Hmm. You know, they didn't all agree, which, which kind of makes it interesting. Hmm. Uh, as well, and of course, with, with Queen Elizabeth, you have you know one of the great figures in history, and you know the, the scholarship about her and biographies, you know, match her stature. So you know, there's so many wonderful ones, and I think you know many people have their particular favorite about Elizabeth. But mm -hmm. you know, she her personality really comes through them uh, loud and clear. Not all the books about Drake or Elizabeth even talk about the other person that much. Mm -hmm. it, it just depends. That happened to be my particular emphasis because it seemed to me, you know, their interaction was really critical in lifting England out of the status of being an isolated nation and becoming a nascent world power. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you make a good argument for that, that point. Um, over the course of the 20 years, what did you come across that most surprised you in this research? Um, I think, uh, you know, the thing that always surprises me, having done some sailing when I was a kid and having a son who was a competitive sailor with lasers, laser sailboats, which are small sailboats, was the amount of sheer guts that it took to leave from England or Seville um, and sail out across the Atlantic and imagine you were ever going to come back um, because it is so immense. The boats are so small. The storms can be so violent, and and that's even, that's not the things. Then there are things you don't even think about, you know, illness, uh, being attacked by hostile people, you know, who knows how many other things. So you know, the fact that they did it at all struck me as perhaps the most incredible 
uh, facet of of the voyage, really about courage it took, or or just sheer, you know, recklessness. That, that always impressed me. And at this time, wasn't scurvy still an issue that that they yeah, didn't know how yeah. to deal with? Yeah, you know, it's funny. It depends who you ask. Hmm. Officially, there was no cure for scurvy discovered until the 18th century. And it was well known in the East. In Asia, they had figured this out a long time ago because they were well advanced over us. Um, but, uh, you know, the idea is that um, if you have some lemon juice or any of the same uh, ingredients found in any number of vegetables, even beer, you know, the scurvy instantly goes away. And, uh, it, and, and if you don't, you can die from it because what happens is your body literally falls apart. You know, your bones and sinews, you know, become detached from one another, mm. um, covered with bruises, and eventually you die. So that was the evil of scurvy. And nobody really knew how to prevent it in England, except sailors had a sense that if you use some sort of citrus fruit or beer or grass or something, uh, that kept it at bay. So uh, Drake had some, you know, off-the-books remedy, if you will, for it without exactly knowing what, what he was doing. Hmm. Unlike China, where they, they really knew what they were doing. And, of course, later on, they got a much clearer idea medically uh, what was going on. Um, it was uh, particularly striking. in uh, So nobody on Drake's voyage died of scurvy, unlike Magellan's. What was interesting there was he brought with him, along with the, and the other officers, a paste called quince, which is like a very, very tart jam made from these little tiny sour berries called quince berries, quince. Mm-hmm. Very rich in vitamin C. And they kept it as part of their special preserve, you know, when I say they, I mean the uh, officers. But they didn't realize that by taking it, they were saving their lives. You yeah. know, it was just one of the sort of special items that they had without realizing it had any particular health or life-saving benefits. Hmm. But they, but Magellan was struck by the fact that his men, many of his men had scurvy, but none of the, none of the officers. And he didn't know why. And nobody made the connection between the quince paste and the scurvy. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was just a curious thing. You know, as I said, Drake, Drake had some idea of what a healthier diet for a, uh, a sailor would be. But I have to tell you, the food they ate was disgusting. Mm-hmm. You know, it was... It was all spoiled. It was raw. It was filled with larvae and um, droppings from animals. And, uh, you know, they would boil it into mush. And it was just gross. The fish they ate, and they often ate it raw, or shellfish, uh, was, you know, vastly superior and much more healthy than any of the uh, food that they brought with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, they were very became very good at foraging. Uh, when they got into the South Pacific, uh, they, they, they came across an island uh, which had a type of crab called a coconut crab. And this was a scary, which I write about, this was a scary creature out of the science fiction um, uh, story because it could crawl up a tree and its pincers were so strong it could snap off somebody's finger. Um, and uh, if, if they ever came across a corpse, they would devour it. Mm. In fact, it's thought that um, Amelia Earhart, the aviator, um, her corpse had been discovered and devoured by coconut crabs. That's that's uh, one theory. On the other hand, um, they were, and they were huge, 
but they were very good eating. They were a very good source of food. So the men braved all these horrors to get a hold of a coconut clam, you know, kill it, you know, knock it, knock it out, uh, you know, and rip the meat out of the shell. And it was really delicious, sweet uh, crab meat, you know, from a giant crab. So they often survived on the coconut crabs, which on the one hand were grotesque, but on the other hand, uh, they were considered a delicacy. Mm. So, you know, the longer you're at sea, you know, the more things, the more your perspective about things changes. <laughs> what you're willing to eat. Yeah. What uh, was there a particular question that you had that that took a lot of effort to come to a conclusion on, and or maybe you still don't know and would like an answer? Yes, yes, that always happens. I have to tell you, question number one, and there are several. Is Drake had no children that we know of, and I wonder what's the deal. Um, was he sterile? Um, he was married twice. Uh, nobody remarked on uh, the fact that there was anything unconventional about the marriages. So I wondered why didn't he, why didn't he have children? If he hadn't had children, things you know might have been very different. So and I never found a satisfactory answer, not even a hint of what what the answer might be. Perhaps he was sterile. But if so, why? So that was that was something that I always uh, always puzzled me. In the beginning and puzzled me at the end. Um, some other things uh, I thought were, um, you know, kind of noteworthy and knots I couldn't really untangle you know, had to do with uh, what happened to him really after uh, the, the Spanish Armada. I we mentioned this episode of his kind of unlucky encounters um, or inconse inconsequential encounters um, in the Caribbean and off the coast of Venezuela. And I'm wondering why, why was Drake, the superstar, uh, content to um, suddenly, uh, you know, do battle in the in this, you know, sort of secondary theater uh, and often lose, you know, why did he lose his mojo? After he had this fabulous castle, Buckland Abbey, and this brand new wife, why did he leave? Did they, did they not get along? Uh, also, he was mayor of Plymouth, so, you know, he was a big deal now in England. So, you know, why didn't he stay there? And he said, okay, he's happier at sea. Okay, fine. But you just wonder, you know, the amount of creature comforts that Buckland Abbey would have been vastly greater than anything he would have had at sea. And of course, he died, you know, uh, at sea. So I, I, I kind of wondered about what led to that in the latter part of his life. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are other things about his childhood that we don't really know. We don't know the year he was born. And, you know, I, I said 1540 for the sake of argument. It kind of been, you know, two or three, even four years in either way uh, of that date. We don't have an exact record. I, I, you know, I wish any character I'd written about had kept, you know, a voluminous, detailed diary of their life for people like me, but mm. we don't really have anything like that from Drake. We have a lot of correspondence. Um, I wondered if Drake, when he was in London, and then this was in the latter part of his career, and Shakespeare was there, did they ever cross paths? Mm. Did they ever meet? London was a small place. Did he ever see any uh, plays that Shakespeare wrote um, or his theater company had put on? Uh, there's no record of that. So, you know, uh, Drake's life in London, uh, we don't really have that complete a record of it. Uh, we, we do know a lot about him for somebody who lived so long ago, that's for sure. But, you know, it's sort of, the more you know, it just raises, you know, more and more questions. And, and then there's the question of, well, they said he died of diphtheria, okay? So we're relying on the testimony of Elizabethan doctors who might not be, you know, the best. And, 
we're trying to diagnose him now, you know, hundreds of years later, mm -hmm. which is often not a wise idea. So, you know, more details surrounding his demise, you know, what, what really was it? Anyway, those are some of the questions that occurred to me. Did Shakespeare write any characters in any of his plays that sort of reflected or were sort of supposed to be Drake in any way? Uh, not Drake, but John Dee is thought to be a source for Prospero, who was the magician king in um, The Tempest. Hmm. And uh, yeah, this is a later play of Shakespeare's and, you know, one of his more visionary works. And you could see Prospero as a kind of imaginary idealization of, uh, of, of John Dee, who I really found a fascinating figure. Uh, you know, used to be better known, still is pretty well known. You know, one of the things about him that he had uh, that was so peculiar were these scrying stones, which they happened to have an exhibit at the British Museum when I was there. Mm -hmm. These were little stones that were about this, a disc the size of... Uh, Oh, I don't know, uh, two, two or three inches in diameter. And um, they were sometimes engraved. And he believed that if he held it up, he could see through it to the spirit world. Hmm. And on the other side, he would see the spirit world. Or he had an assistant who would see it for him. Uh, hmm. And he had a collection of these grinding stones. And I, I thought this was, you know, really something quite amazing. And this wasn't Harry Potter. He, he really <laughs> believed it. And yet he was a brilliant mathematician. You know, totally logical. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same point, he imported uh, the divided sign and other mathematical symbols which are universal into England, and they were not used at that point. So, you know, he uh, he went to various realms, and of course, he was a visionary with the sense of the British Empire. In my mind, he somehow leads in his sensibility to the English poet uh, uh, William Blake huh. um, because it's the same kind of uh, visionary capacity that was grounded um, in the Bible and other ancient texts, uh, which he projected onto England. And, uh, you know, the, the exalted name for England at that point was Albion, huh. uh, which was like its legendary uh, name. And in fact, when Drake got to the northern part of his coast of uh, North America, uh, along uh, California and uh, Washington State, he named that area New Albion. You know, instead of New England, but the same idea. And uh, so he, he, he did have this sense of, uh, almost Arthurian sense of, a, you know, an English realm uh, out there, which was perhaps more real and imaginary, but he was, you know, trying to find some some real uh, coordinates for it. Mm -hmm. did, um, did you come across anything that had a strong emotional impact on you, either positively or negatively, humorous or... or sort of um, uh, pretty sad. Well, I would say that, uh, you know, Magellan actually had a, a great deal of tragedy and grief, partly because he has, there were so many people who died who was such a, had such a, such a difficult nature. Uh, Drake was far more upbeat, so it was, uh, you know, one perhaps doesn't feel sad, you've kind of carried away in this uh, buccaneering uh, voyage. You know, that's, that's a very good question, and I, I, I think I'm probably still trying to formulate the answer. That's it's not one I could come up with immediately. Mm -hmm. Okay. What part of all this is most enjoy has been most enjoyable for you in the research? Oh, <laughs> anything to do with research. I tell you, I wish it could go on forever. Mm -hmm. I love traveling and seeing places. I love meeting people in connection with research. 
I love talking with experts. Mm-hmm. You know, this is fascinating stuff. It's a, if the subject is not that great, then the, the, the research isn't that great. But you know, this for me was was uh, you know like uh, you know was really a, a, a treat. Uh, a lot of it, um, collating some of the papers, making various discoveries about oh yes, this ha- X happened because of Y. You know, and I didn't see that before, or maybe maybe nobody else saw it before. So putting the pieces together is great. You know, for me subjectively, maybe other people are, are different. Uh, writing is difficult. It's strenuous. Um, I'm very self-critical. It never seems good enough. Even now, if I, you know, I have this, I have the book right here. Mm. If I started picking up the page, it would be painful for me mm. uh, to, because I would say, oh, right, I should have done this. And I, I wrote this thing over and over and over and over and over. This mm. was not a first draft. Quite the opposite. You know, but I still see things, well, perhaps it should have been expressed a different way. Uh, and my thoughts about it, even though the book is now done and out of, and, and in print, uh, keep evolving. And I'm, I'm rewriting parts of it in my mind. I think, oh, you know, I should have said it that way. Oh, I should have drawn that connection. And I didn't. Of course, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's too late now because, you know, once the process starts, uh, in, in my mind anyway, it doesn't stop. It, it keeps goes, it goes on, uh, 24-7. And, uh, so, but but I do find writing really, you know, really strenuous. And I'm my when I when I finish a long writing session, I feel drained. Mm. So you said uh, I think you said this was you've done eleven you've written eleven previously or this is your eleventh. Uh, well, this is the eleventh book. Uh, Twelve, if you include a rather long young adult book that I wrote with my daughter, who's, who's thirty six, mm. about the Chinese explorer Zheng He, who's not that well known in the West, but a major figure um, in Chinese history, hmm. and that was uh, so. That was so. You'd say eleven with an asterisk, perhaps. Did you have any um, difficulties getting this one published, or it seems probably smooth? Getting the Drake book published? Yeah. Oh, you know, I've been lucky. Uh, publishers are interested in my books, mm-hmm. and um, you know, it's it can be a difficult, and volatile environment, uh, but I've been very fortunate that publishers have. Uh, you know, been uh, willing to publish them. You know, I try to, you know, work on something in concert with a publisher, which they're happy with. I think if I came up with an idea which was very idiosyncratic, it might be a much tougher sell. But, um, you know, I, I try to look at books that will both appeal to me, to readers, and to publishers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if you can get something, it's like a Venn diagram. If you get the areas overlapping, you know, maybe you have something that works. And I have to tell you, a lot of it, I, I don't understand the process. It's subjective. You know, I really don't know why something grants me. Uh, why would I like writing about sailing? I really don't know. You know, I'm a city boy um, and myself, and although I've done some sailing, and my son is a very, very enthusiastic sailor, that's not the same as, you know, growing up with the sea. Right. And uh, it, a lot of it is just intuitive. There are sometimes books that I've, I'll think about some idea, and I'll say, oh, this is a terrific idea. I'm going to write a book about it. And I never really, once I get into it, I just can't keep my interest going. It doesn't mean it's a bad idea. Sometimes I'll, some other book will come along on a similar subject and, you know, hit it out of the park. But I find that, uh, you know, it's a lot of it is unconscious. And, you know, I don't want to interfere with that part too much because if I'm, if I can figure out, how to do a book, I don't really want to overthink it, as an editor of mine once said. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, a, a good story will tell itself 
if you let it. Now, I also give a lot of thought to the structure of the story because you want people to keep turning the pages. And, you know, for me, anyway, when you're writing about exploration and discovery, you know, it's narrative. It's not just data. Mm -hmm. It's how you structure the story and how one event leads to another. Um, there are various climaxes. Um, you know, it's, it's not that I'm playing games, but, you know, I want to build it in a way that makes it uh, suspenseful or intriguing and uh, gives people a sense of, you know, what a really special story this is. Mm -hmm. Do I succeed all the time? No, not really. Some of my most ambitious ideas, you know, they really, uh, my reach often exceeds my grasp. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, I keep trying. Uh, once in a while, you have you ever made a catch with a, lucky catch with a baseball where you just sort of stuck your glove out and by some miracle the bell just lands right there. It's sunk. Once in a while that happens. I don't really know how that happens. Hmm. Often it's not, though, you know, it doesn't land right there. And I, you know, I can't quite get it. I, I keep fumbling with it. And, you know, some sections I'll write 10, 12, 15 times to get them right. And they still don't feel right. Mm -hmm. But, you know, perhaps they're better than they were the first time around. Right. Do, do you have a current writing project? Uh, yes, I'm working on a new new one. Yes, also exploration and discovery, uh, but not uh, not historical and not 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 to see. Okay, I can't say more than that. Okay, so where can can people follow you on online? Do you have a website or social media? Website lawrenceburggreen.com. Mm -hmm. Lawrence with a U, and I think there's a lot of stuff about me that's you know appeared online over the years, interviews, lectures, uh, books, um, and, uh, you know, as well. So I think there's a fairly extensive documentation. Also, if they start researching Drake, somebody wants to learn more about Drake, the Wikipedia about Drake, which I was reading the other day, is actually darn good. And uh, Wikipedias aren't always that good, but this was a really good one, whoever put it together. Mm -hmm. So that, that would be a good place to start. And of course, then it links uh, to many other things. I, I'd also recommend this book if your uh, audience can find it called In Drake's Wake mm -hmm. um, by this fellow Turner, who I got to know when I was in England, who has made it, it's just not only in England, he had, he has, he's a former school teacher, history teacher, and he made it his project to try and visit every single landfall of Drake's anywhere in the world and write about it and photograph it. So he compiled a massive volume, like a phone book, mm -hmm. uh, if you remember phone books, um, you know, of all these, uh, of all these sites. So that was, that was also, you know, really extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And of course, any document from the Victorian era, you know, letters, diaries, and journals are automatically fascinating. I think I mentioned uh, Francis Fletcher's journey, uh, journal. Um, there are others. Drake himself was not a, uh, he, he wrote, it was, he wrote, it was, it was, you could see it was laborious for him to write, but he didn't write a fair amount. Mm -hmm. uh, but he didn't really write a really detailed account of his own circumnavigation. One needs to build up a picture from other sources, and then you can occasionally add Drake into the picture. Mm -hmm. So I'll spell your name for listeners just to find your website. It's L A U R E N C E. B E R G R E E N dot com. Is that correct? Okay. So, so apart from filling the historical gap and, and educating and uh, entertaining readers, what, what do you hope this book will do? Oh, I, 
I wanted to make it entertaining. I wanted to make it a great, a true life adventure story. I, you know, I like reading true life adventure stories, whether it's sailing or mountain climbing or, or something else. And, uh, American or other countries. So that, that was really my, my other goal. My, my, my second goal was to put this together into an exciting adventure. When you have a dynamic figure like Drake, you know, that's possible. Okay. Well, um, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any parting thoughts or words? Um, well, I think I've mostly, I think I've, uh, you know, shared them with you. And thank you very much for uh, allowing me this forum to speak. I appreciate it a great deal. Oh, yeah. It's interesting stuff. Um, yeah. Thank you for taking the time with me. In the next episode, I speak with Jeff Gwynn about the U.S. Army's punitive expedition into Mexico in 1916. Bullseye, the subscribe button to catch that episode. Thank you for listening to Military History Inside Out. If you want more interviews with military historians or daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and follow me at Warscholar on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, at Chris Alvarez Warscholar on Instagram, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily fiction suggestions, including sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, sign up for my newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com and follow me on Chris Alvarez, Full Contact Nerd on YouTube, Chris Alvarez FCN on Facebook and Twitter, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Instagram, and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and follow me at Spacewalks Money Talks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, Spacewalks MT on Twitter, and my podcast, Technology and Space. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you again soon.